Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to a very special live edition of Diffusion Science Radio here on 2SER 107.3, where you can get your weekly dose of weird and wonderful science. I'm Julianne Popple. On this edition, we'll feature the Ig Nobel Awards, Spunky Starfish and Smart Lamps. But first up, here's this week's science news. <laughs> A team of scientists have estimated the half-life of DNA by studying the bones of three species of extinct moa birds. The team, led by Morten Allentoft from the University of Copenhagen and Michael Bunce from Perth University, examined 158 DNA-containing leg bones that were between 600 and 8,000 years old. The bones were recovered from three sites with near-identical preservation conditions, allowing direct comparison of the specimens based on age and degradation alone. From this, the researchers were able to calculate the half-life of DNA, which is 525 years. That is, it takes 520 years for half the DNA to degrade. I spoke to Dr Simon Ho, an expert in ancient DNA from the University of Sydney, about the significance of this result. There have been a lot of studies on uh, the survival of DNA in ancient specimens. So when an organism dies, uh, its DNA starts to break down. And we want to estimate how long it takes for the DNA to break down so that we can tell how far back we can reach in terms of getting DNA information. Normally, it's quite hard to estimate this rate of decay because uh, there are a lot of factors that affect DNA breakdown, not just age, but also temperature, how much water is present, pH. And so these vary so much from one site to another that um, it's really hard to tell uh, which of these factors are affecting it and to what extent. So in this, in this latest study, the authors got a lot of samples from just uh, uh, three sites and these three sites their conditions are pretty well known and they're able to remove a lot of these factors and just look at the effect of age on the uh, rate of DNA decay. And what about getting a reliable sample of DNA that you can read from? Um, it really depends on the the uh, the temperature uh, that's probably the most important factor uh, in addition to age, even under ideal conditions. So if it's permanently frozen, for example, the, the oldest uh, reliable samples so far are about half a million years old, just under one million. And based on these these models, this latest study plus uh, previous models, uh, we expect that around a million or maybe two million would be the upper limit. So we wouldn't really expect to see uh, DNA much older than that. So does this mean that uh, cloning dinosaurs is definitely out of the question? Uh, yeah, it's almost certainly uh, impossible to do that. Uh, dinosaurs died out about 65 million years ago, and so that's well beyond the time limit that we expect DNA to survive. In dinosaur samples, usually the dinosaur fossils are completely turned to stone, so they've completely fossilized. The sort of samples that we study using ancient DNA methods, they, they usually have some sort of 
organic material left, a bit of bone left or some hair. But dinosaurs are really, uh, there's, no, there's no organic material left in those samples. In the animal kingdom, there are numerous species that will squawk out a sound of some kind, but few are able to learn songs. Most examples that spring to mind are birds, such as lyrebirds that are known to mimic everything from chainsaws to camera shutters. One animal that you probably wouldn't think of as a great singer is the mouse, but that's because we can't hear them singing. Male mice are able to sing rather complex songs in the ultrasonic range, higher than our hearing range, in order to, to, to attract the um, <clears throat> attention of certain female mice, shall we say. Previously, it was thought that this ability was instinctive or innate, but recent research shows that mice are able to copy or learn the songs of other males. Gustavo Ariaga and colleagues from the Duke University Medical Center in North Carolina, USA, found that when pairs of male mice with different songs were housed together, the pitch of their songs would converge over a period of eight weeks of cohabitation. They also examined the brain activity of the mice and discovered that mice have similar neural mechanisms to other species that exhibit vocal learning, such as birds and humans. Mice, however, don't have quite the same vocal ability as humans or some birds, and it's likely more research is needed to find out, ex to find out the full extent of what mice are capable of vocally. To find out more about the study, check out our blog on www.2ser.com slash shows slash diffusion. The study was published in the Public Library of Science 1 journal. I'm currently joined in the studio with uh, three other members of the Diffusion team. So would you like to introduce yourself, guys? Uh, hi, my name is Therese. Hi, I'm Oliver. And I'm Arwen Cross. Okay, everyone's heard of the Nobel Prizes. They're basically the Oscars of science, recognising groundbreaking research. On the flip side, there are the Ig Nobel Prizes. The Ig Nobel Prizes are organised by the magazine The Annals of Improbable Research and are awarded to honour research that first makes people laugh and then makes them think. Every year in a Gallic ceremony in Harvard, three awards are physically handed out by genuinely bemused, genuine Nobel laureates. So, what do you think about this year's uh, Ig Nobel Prizes? Any, any particular ones you found interesting? I was interested by the title of the Literature Prize, well, the report about the report about reports, but I didn't get far into the actual report. Fair enough. Too much reporting on reporting on reporting. One of my particular favourites was the Chemistry Prize for solving why, in certain houses in the town of Andslov, Sweden, people's hair turned green. Did you guys read about that one? What made the hair turn green? Oh, it's a fascinating story. What was happening is they'd build a whole bunch of these new houses and they thought initially it was the drinking water, but once they realised it wasn't the drinking water or copper in the drinking water, they looked at people's showers. And these new houses had been installed with uh, piping that didn't have uh, proper coating on the inside, so copper was actually coming through the water in really high levels and, you know, a lot of blonde people in Sweden, hair turned an unfortunate fluoro green colour, um, so they had to do a bit of plumbing work in these new houses. And did that have any effect on people's health or was it just their hair colour? Uh, 
as far as I'm aware, it didn't really adversely affect their health, but I'm really not sure about the health effects of copper. Um, another interesting one was the, uh, the Psychology Prize. Um, it was given to a research team from the Netherlands for their study on leaning to the left makes the Eiffel Tower seem smaller. I wonder how they got the inspiration for this particular study. So I heard that they uh, they have a theory that, that people have a number line in their heads, you know, so zero is in the middle and uh, negative numbers on the left and positive on the right, or, or in a more simple format, perhaps zero at one end and infinity on the other. But this means that smaller things are on the left and bigger things are on the right. And so these researchers uh, put people on a, a tilty platform but told them that they were standing on the flat. And so they didn't know that they were leaning to the left, um, but they still had this effect of um, of thinking that things were smaller. But uh, I'm, I'm a bit puzzled by this. I wonder, you know, whether the number line in your head is is something cultural that you learn when you do mathematics at school or whether it has anything to do with coming from a language where we write from left to right and so I'd love to to hear about you know what would happen if you did this with someone who wrote in a different direction or used a different number system or had never learned mathematics formally at school. Oh yeah Mm -hmm. different cultures so maybe if you come from maybe a non-western culture you might lean to the right and make it seem smaller. Interesting. All right. Um, another interesting one was the Acoustics Prize. Was it Therese? Uh, yes, the one? Acoustics Prize was given to Katsutaka Kuhara and Koji Tsukata for creating a speech drummer, which I, I believe is a machine that disrupts a person's speech by making them hear their own spoken words at a slight delay, only in Japan, which I think is very interesting because Japan, to my uh, knowledge, has a culture where they have a there's a greater social protocol in terms of etiquette and being quiet in public areas such as libraries and um, trains. But what, what was also interesting was the effect was different when the person was actually reading from a written script, so the cognitive functions must be different, I think. I, I have a speech jammer at home. It's called my phone when the internet's <laughs> slow. Uh, another one I found particularly fascinating was the Neuroscience Prize, which was awarded for demonstrating that brain researchers, by using really complicated instruments but simple statistics, can see meaningful brain activity anywhere, even in a dead salmon. Now, Arwen, I understand you've read up a bit on this one. Well, it seems that this one was supposed to be a joke. So um, so the researchers did intend this to be a bit of a tongue-in-cheek study. Um, and this is perhaps um, supported by the fact that they didn't publish it in a regular science journal, but in a journal called um, Serendipitous and Unexpected Results. So they, um, they were looking at uh, functional MRIs, which is a, a type of brain scan where you can see the activity of brains. And they'd actually tested out on a, a few other odd things in years past, uh, even things that don't have brains like pumpkins. And, uh, and then they were testing it out on this dead salmon. And, and what they were trying to do, I suppose, is look at the kind of background activity that you might see in this type of MRI um, that isn't really to do with brain activity. And so uh, even though it is a bit of a joke for for salmon to to be thinking and and show up on a brain scan, they they did say it was a good um, reminder to scientists that we need to be careful about how we collect our data. And, uh, And they were working particularly on there's a statistical 
correction that you need to do if you're one of these MRI brain scan scientists. And apparently, since they wrote their study about the dead salmon, there has been a, an increase in the, the number of scientists who are correcting their data properly to make sure that they're not recording random, random uh, signals that aren't really from brain activity. So it looks like they may have had a positive effect. Well, it's good to erase awareness of uh, scientific rigour through the means of a dead salmon, I, I find. And the physics prize, this one's a doozy, for calculating the balance of forces that shape and move the hair in a human ponytail. As a gamer, I think this one's pretty important because, you know, you get the prettiest, swishiest hair because physics physicists know how it works and then people who make games learn how to, to emulate that with their algorithms. I wonder, it, it, I wonder if it would have an application there. I've, I, I was very fascinated by the applications of this one and I, I discovered that the research had been funded by Unilever and I, I didn't find out that what product it was they wanted to know about ponytail dynamics for. Is this a shampoo or a hair elastic or, or what? But uh, it seems that uh, what they've done is they've, done, they've modelled these individual hair strands as elastic filaments and they've looked at curvatures and come up with equations and uh, all of this came back to a, a very simple final result that, that they could treat the hair much as a spring. Um, but they think that this might be useful in, um, in applications outside of the world of ponytails, um, such as insulation, where if, you know, in your roof you have, um, you know, fiberglass or, or some sort of similar insulator that is made out of fibres, then if you know something about how fast it compresses under what forces, you might be able to, you know, figure out how to make your, your insulation last longer. If you're interested in finding out more about the Ig Nobel Prizes, check out our blog. Inspired by the Ig Nobles, I started a segment earlier this year called In the Name of Science. I was rather disappointed that the Ig Nobles did not award a biology prize this year, so I've decided to name my favourite In the Name of Scientist participant for 2012. This year, it's Dave McElroy, a PhD candidate from the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Sydney. And the prize is that we get to hear once again how he faced a dish full of starfish sperm. In the Name of Science. Some people will do amazing and bizarre things in the name of love. Others will do it in the name of their country. But nothing, nothing compares to what some will do in the name of science. What is the strangest thing you've done in the name of science? Well, I, uh, I've done a few strange things, um, but the strangest would have to be what I did during my honours. Um, which was play God with starfish. I um I would I would have to uh, figure out what gender they were because basically I was looking at uh, I was doing climate change research and we were interested in finding out whether the um, whether sea stars uh, were vulnerable to 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 climate change to climate change stress such as temperature such as global warming and ocean acidification um, and we were interested in looking at the most vulnerable ones which are unfortunately the babies. What that required was playing a bit of God uh, with the starfish, which meant that um, I needed to source starfish sperm and uh, starfish eggs. Now, the guys, that's easy because they're all always ready to go. How does one sort uh, starfish sperm? <laughs> um, basically, we just take a bit of their gonad and um, mush it up. Don't worry, it grows back. The ladies, on the other hand, are a little bit more difficult, as you would expect. We'd need to cover them with this little ovulatory hormone, which about 
two or three hours after doing that they spawn i wish we had something for people well not something that would make them spawn but you know (laughs) some sort of equivalent and so anyway i'd I'd been doing this very long experiment for about i'd been at the office for maybe 12 hours i was very tired very very tired and i'd finished thankfully and i was at the cleaning up stage now i had my little petri dish of starfish sperm that i'd been using throughout the day and it was sitting right at the bottom of the sink and i reached over holding this this armload of beakers and uh, turned on the hot water and it came out absolutely piping hot and burnt my hand i dropped the beakers into the sink which smashed and then the uh, jet of hot water hit the bottom of the dish the petri dish and actually emptied the entire dish all over my face in fact it kind of aerated it so it misted the sperm um and and so that burnt a little bit as well and then i guess (laughs) the worst bit about that was having to get home from there um on on the bus and i was that person on the bus that smells kind of funny and everyone has to move away from so you went home on the bus smelling of starfish spunk yeah yeah which is kind it kind of smells like pikelet batter but saltier I'll never look at pikelets in the same way again. Back to the science of uh, why you were collecting uh, starfish sperm and eggs. What did you find in the end? Was there an effect of climate? Um, yeah, and, and, it, and it appeared that, that it was the, the young'uns, the baby starfish, that were actually the most vulnerable. Often people think about, um, you know, the strong adults and things. You know, these starfish, they live in high up in the intertidal where they're constantly being exposed to all sorts of funny things. But it only takes one stage... Of that of that starfish life cycle to fall over and then everything's down so things look a little bit little bit dire what kind of degree of change is enough to disrupt the entire life cycle only a few degrees sort of what's expected in that best case scenario if we um pull back emissions and and try and keep them at i guess levels that we have now um certainly if we continue business as usual then things are looking even worse that's a pretty dire scenario yeah yeah it's um <laughs> Definitely a lot, a lot uh, less light-hearted than getting drenched in starfish spunk. Well, you're doing it all in the name of a good cause. Thanks for talking <laughs> to me, David. That was Dave McElroy, our favourite in the name of scientist for 2012, talking about starfish sex and global warming. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to diffusion at 2SER.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SER 107.3, and over the internet on diffusionradio.com. Connected intelligence is in every device. The magic price point is here. Inventor Mark Pesci has launched LightCloud, a lamp with an LAMP stack which means it runs Linux, Apache web server, MySQL database, and Python programming language, LAMP. Mark spoke to Ian Wolfe in the stairwell of the Fishburners building in Sydney last week about playful smart devices that talk with you. So LightCloud is a lamp with a lamp stack. What that means is that it's a lamp, so 52 LEDs with 2 million colors, each are individually controllable, but it has a small Linux computer on board. It's still fully powered, and so it's running Linux, it's running Apache, the web server, it's running Python, so that means that it now is a device that's internet connected. It's got Wi-Fi, so it's internet connected, so that means it can control things over the internet and can be controlled by things over the internet. 
foreign sample. You're watching a scary movie at home. It's a live broadcast. And the broadcaster is sending up commands to your light cloud. It's modulating the light in your house as you're getting the scary part. The lights go down, lights go back up again. So it's what we call illumination as a service. All right, so it allows people to send you mood lighting or send you an animation of the day or whatever it might be. And so it becomes a device that not just shows you state so you can look at it and maybe know what the temperature is outside or whether it's going to rain, but it actually brings both the virtual world and the real world in and it can talk to other things so that if you wake up in the middle of the night and tap it and turn it on, it can tell your other lamps in the house to turn on so you can find your way to the bathroom. That's terrific. And you can put other information in but that's the thing. It's, it's a computer. I mean, any of the any of the flexibility that you have with the computer, but rather than having a big display on it, and the thing about displays, we have lovely high resolution displays, but they demand attention. The nice thing about a light is that it's actually ambient. You can glance at it and get a sense, or you can not. Or if it starts blinking, oh, there's a Facebook message, or there's a tsunami, or you know whatever it might be. So you can imagine someone waking up in the middle of the night and it's blinking red because there's been a tornado warning. Right? Or in the middle of the day, it's making blue because it's time to take your medicine. Or, you know, and you can go on and on and on like this. So it just becomes a way of making light, which is the original electric technology intelligence. So now it's not just light, but it's what we call Moore's light, right? So it's got Moore's law combined with the fact of electric illumination. Wonderful. And if people want to play with the hardware and software, yeah. It's open. It's, uh, that's, that, that's the thing. So I hope people will support us on the Kickstarter, which will launch on the, October the 16th. And one of the things is all of our hardware and all of our software is open. I mean, we're not worried about people copying, because what we're doing is we're building a platform for people to play. It's this lovely line from William Gibson, the street finds its own use for things. Uses its makers never intended. And we really want that. We want people to take this thing and run with it and go all sorts of weird directions that we would never think of. Because that's where the creativity is. I mean, just like a computer. And the problem with computers and smartphones is people just sort of get them and, oh, there's some apps and you use them, but you don't have to necessarily think about them as being platforms for being creative because they get so constrained now. They're so, sort of prepackaged. Yes. And what I want to be able to do is sort of free the light so that the light isn't just something that's prepackaged, which it has been for 150 years. You know, it's magical. You turn it on and there it is. And, you know, it changed day and night into day. So it transforms civilization. But now it needs to actually be eaten by software become this very playful, interactive thing that has an interiority with it. So people can play with light. People can play with light. That's amazing. And the lights talk to each other. Yeah, yeah, they're all on Wi-Fi, so they can all they can, they can talk to any other service on the internet, including inside the house. So all the lights in the house are talking to each other, and all the lights then around the world can be talking to each other. We're now talking to the Vivid Festival about maybe doing something where, because the Vivid Festival is a beautiful festival in Sydney where there's lots of beautiful light installations that people get to play with. And that's the thing about it is that a lot of the work, it's quite playful. So maybe you have a, an installation with a whole bunch of light clouds down on the circuit of the key, but these are also networked to people who have light clouds in their homes. And so there's a sort of macrocosm, microcosm thing going. There. And it's just an enormous ground for playfulness and being able to explore. And apparently, if we seal it correctly, it'll flow in the pool. You know, this whole idea that uh, you could have a large public installation that is then, because it's a network device, networked to the private installation. So you think about it, we can put an accelerometer into 
a light cloud so that it's an actual object that you don't just look at, but you can actually pick up and play with, which opens up an entire ground of games and all sorts of crazy stuff. Yeah. What inspired the idea in the first place? Um, I got my hands on a Raspberry Pi at the beginning of June, and I've been wanting it for a while because you know this is the, it's the new um, it's the new blood really right is <laughs> that this this idea that computing and very sort of high performance computing by the standards yeah. that are that are relatively recent high yes. performance computing incredibly cheap Moore's law right. Mm -hmm. And so as soon as I had that and was running Linux on it and got it up and running, I started connecting things to it and connected an LED and then got that LED on the internet so yeah. my friends could turn the LED on and off. And I spent a couple of days watching the LED flare as my friends turned it on and off. And one thing sort of led to another. And so the sort of flowering of that idea became the light cloud. And was, it really had to do with the fact that, you know, I've been on the web for pretty much as long as there's been a web. And I've also been doing physical computing for about 20 years as well. So this is not, it was an arrangement that was a long time in coming, but the price point wasn't right yet. And I've also had the background in doing consumer electronics. And so I was, I guess, maybe almost waiting. And I actually tried to do a version of this nine years ago, around the same time we moved to Australia, that I was going to call it Brixel. Yes. Um, and I could never really get the design I wanted because the devices were too dumb. All right, you really have to have a computer and Wi-Fi and all that stuff on board before the devices become intelligent enough to become interesting. Mm. Now we've got this magic point where all the electronics for the brain, twelve got a magic price point. So this is just the first of what are going to clearly be a lot of devices from a lot of people that have a lot of intelligence, and not just intelligence, connected intelligence, and that's the key thing. I mean, you can have the smartest dishwasher in the world, but if it can't talk to anything, who cares? And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you've got a science question, comment or story, you can send emails to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com and we'll do our best to feature your ideas in a future episode of Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program in the studio with me are... Therese. Oliver. And Arwen. And also there was an interview provided by Ian Wolfe. I've produced a fusion in the studios of 2SER in Sydney with expert technical assistance from Miles Martignoni. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Dr Julianne Popple. Join us next week on Diffusion Science Radio for more science awesomeness. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.